Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am honored to be in dialogue with Dr. Javier Irujo. He is full professor and chair of the Center for Basque Studies at the University of Nevada, Reno. We are here to discuss his edited volume, co-edited with Keralt Sole, Nazi Juggernaut in the Basque Country in Catalonia, published in Reno by the Center for Basque Studies and the University of Nevada Press, 2018. Thank you for your availability. I'm tremendously honored. Thank you very much, Harry. It is a, a, a pleasure for me to be here and to be able to speak to, with you about all this uh, dark episode of uh, European history. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative in your what formative events in your life catalyzed the scholar you would become as an adult? Yeah, well, you know, I am a professor of um, genocide studies. And uh, as many of us, um, that is a very specific and limited, let's say, uh, pool of people. Uh, we are not many here in the United States or in Europe. And um, usually it's because of personal reasons. I come from a family that has suffered six exiles in five generations. That means that during the last uh, five generations of my family, uh, someone has been expelled from uh, the Basque country in this case, or uh, usually incarcerated, imprisoned, uh, tortured, um, some among them shot. My grandparents were in a Nazi concentration camp and, uh, well, and obviously the expropriation of all goods, all goods except one. There is only one thing that we have received from all these uh, generations and we still have at home. And this is um, due to the nature of this nature of these uh, regimes that have expelled uh, members of my, my family and other families in Europe all over these last uh, 150 years. And that is books. <laughs> the authorities, the police, the army that have searched uh, our houses for all these uh, uh, you know, periods of dictatorship, etc., have um, expropriated all goods except books. According to these people, books are not <laughs> valuables. Let's say. So we still have the library that my great-grandparent has had in his house in 1830. Um, in Tafalla, in the Basque country. What inspired you to write this book? What do you hope readers will gain from it? What message do you hope to convey to readers, both as a contributor and also as an editor of the volume? Well, you know, um, first, as a son of exile, I was born in exile. I think it is important to underline 
the risks of uh, these extreme right movements that are hitting strongly in Europe. Now, for example, in Italy, once again, but also in France, in Holland, in Austria, uh, Hungary, and many other places in Europe. Um, and uh, it is important to revisit history and see uh, what was the tremendous damage of uh, uh, these ideologies uh, in that uh, precise moment of history, okay, from, we can say, the 1920s, 1929 to 1947 in Europe, and um, mostly in Europe. Yeah. And, um, well, uh, this book, uh, you know, tries to bring the, 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 the consequences of war and dictatorship uh, in Catalonia and the Basque Country to the reader. And uh, well, everything we have written about is, uh, is terrible atrocities that uh, happened not so long ago, it's one generation ago, and uh, it may happen again if we don't take the measures, the necessary measures to, 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 to avoid it. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? Well, uh, it covers the period of um, between 1937 and 1945, in this case, in two European nations, in the Pyrenees, okay, the Basque country and Catalonia. Um, and that means that the most important aspects of it is the um, Nazi, the German Nazi and Italian fascist involvement in the War of 1936, usually it is called the Spanish Civil War, but it was much more than that. It was much more than Spanish. It was much more than a war, and it was much more than civil, for sure. I mean, none of the pilots uh, that bombed uh, Guernica, for example, were Spanish. So we cannot really refer to that war as a Spanish Civil War. Um, and also uh, what happened during the occupation of Western Europe uh, under the Nazis um, from 1940 to 1944. So that, that is uh, the main, uh, let's say, historical framework of this. And we mentioned uh, what these regimes, the Spanish dictatorship of General Franco, uh, Mussolini's Italy and uh, Hitler's Germany, uh, developed during these years. We are speaking of terror bombing, um, we are speaking of a violation of international treaties, uh, war of aggression, uh, concentration camps, extrajudicial killings, mass murder, uh, exile, expropriation of goods, uh, etc. What is your book's contribution to refugee studies? Well, uh, this is a very specific part of the of, uh, you know, atrocities, let's say, uh, happening in Europe it is a very specific chapter of the history of genocide also uh, worldwide. And it is a very specific uh, part of the Holocaust. So uh, I think that we have, uh, for the first time, uh, explained in detail, I guess, uh, what uh, was about, what happened in this corner of the world uh, during that period of time, 1936 to 1945. <clears throat> so um, we have uh, tried to develop, let's say, the literature on the Holocaust, on genocidal studies, or on atrocities, uh, violation of human rights happening in Western Europe uh, during this mid-20th century 
in this specific part of the world. I don't think there was much literature about uh, terror bombing, for example, in the Basque Country. There was almost nothing written about it, or in Catalonia. Um, and these are the, 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 it is basically the prologue to World War II. According to many historians, uh, the, the, this war is called the Spanish Civil War, and it doesn't have anything to do with World War II. But that was not the opinion of most of the leaders, political leaders, including fascist and Nazi uh, political leaders of the time. They all thought that this was an international war. Among them, for example, Claude Claude Bowers, he was the U.S. ambassador to the Spanish Republic, and he wrote in his memoirs, My Mission to Spain, that um, this was a prologue to World War II. The U.S. Congress uh, passed a resolution um, declaring uh, Italy and, uh, and Germany at war with the Spanish Republic as well, the U.S. Congress as a whole, as a Congress. So... At the time, it was very clear that this was just part of World War II. But later on, historiography has turned these two episodes in completely separated uh, happenings, and they are not. I think that we have uh, made clear that uh, the same people who bombed Guernica bombed later on Warsaw, Warsaw or uh, Stalingrad, for example. In this case, Richthofen and Sperle and some other members of the Condor Legion operating in the Basque Country in 1937. What is your book's contribution to the history of warfare and to military history? Well, um, here we have a, a very specific chapter dedicated to terror bombing. And uh, I think it is very important, a key a chapter on the history of bombing uh, from the air um, as a whole. Uh, uh, what happened in the Basque Country and Catalonia between 1937, we may say between the fall of 1936 to, uh, let's say, the spring of 1939, uh, is key in the development of um, bombing from the air, and more specifically on terror bombing. Terror bombing is just the bombing open cities, uh, looking for killing civilians and then, um, let's say, bringing uh, the enemy into uh, surrender by uh, terrorizing uh, societies. Well, uh, this was uh, this is a technique that was used in World War One already, and well, from the beginning of the century, it was developed even before the planes were invented in the 19th century. The bombings, the the bombing campaigns were so massive that uh, in the first high um, convention, it was forbidden to bombing from the air. It is the first and only time that at the very beginning of the 20th century, bombing from the air has been forbidden at international level. Uh, but it was never, um, the, the reality never complied with that uh, legislation, humanitarian or international legislation, yes, war legislation. And during this period of, uh, of war in the Basque Country, uh, Germans uh, developed a very specific way of bombing from the air. Uh, and more specifically of terror bombing from the air. And that was exactly the methodology that was used in order to bomb many cities during World War II, especially Warsaw. It is one of the first ones, okay, the first target. But we can speak of Rampol and many other cities, uh, hundreds of cities that were bombed following exactly the same pattern used, developed, um, discovered, tested, 
in Guernica, Durango, a neighbor among other Basque cities. So I think it is important to understand the, you know, the history of warfare. And this book uh, provides a lot of data, uh, very relevant for that. What new insights does your book offer regarding the history of World War II? What would a student or scholar of World War II gain from reading your book it, that he might not know before? Yes, as said, uh, they will learn that World War II started three years before. <laughs> World War II didn't start in 1939. It started in July 1936. And um, <clears throat> if we look, for example, at the Condor Legion, and this is the unit that Hitler sent to the to 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 to, the, to Franco in order to help him with the coup, we see that many of the officers that uh, were operating uh, under Franco's orders uh, are later on or became later on uh, aces of the Luftwaffe uh, during World War II and also marshals of the Luftwaffe. This is the case of Wolfram von Richthofen. You know, he was the cousin of the Red Baron, Manfred von Richthofen, and uh, he was fully operating under uh, Franco orders uh, from 1937, January, indeed, 1937, to April 1939. And then when uh, Hitler well, decided to attack Poland, <clears throat> he sent Obviously, the most, um, let's say, professional units that he had and uh, led by Richthofen during the, the occupation of Poland. Uh, so we see the same people operating uh, nonstop from 1936-37 to 1945 in many cases. Some among them died during World War II, but some of the main aces of the Luftwaffe um, well, gained that uh, training that they needed uh, from 1936 to 1939. So one of the first lessons, let's say, of this book is that World War II started in 1936. And this is not me saying that. Uh, this is Franco saying that, Hitler, Mussolini, um, and most of the leaders uh, of both sides at the moment. For example, the president of the Spanish Republic or uh, the president of France or... Uh, uh, among many other, you know, international leaders of the time, the U.S. ambassador to the to the Spanish Republic, he not only said that uh, all of them wrote that, and we mentioned that in the book. What new insights does your book reveal about the bombing of Guernica in 1937? Yeah, well, I have written several books about the bombing of Guernica. I have devoted basically my last uh, 20 years to the study of the bombing of Guernica and uh, concentration camps. And uh, in the case of the bombing of Guernica, what I say in this book is basically, a, would say, a summary of what I have already published in other books, okay? But um, I may say that um, one of the first consequences of studying what happened in Guernica is how thoughtful all these operations were. I mean, Guernica is the product of a war experiment that took place all over uh, uh, March and April of 1936. Uh, Richthofen, who was the architect or the engineer of this bombing, uh, developed what in his own words was going to become the perfect bombing, the perfect way of bombing. Um, the weapon that was going to give Germany victory in World War II. 
in the next war, as they as they were already spoken in 1936. I mean, uh, Gerin, for example, was named the head of the four-year plan. The four-year plan was nothing but uh, prepare Germany for war uh, from 1936 to 1940. Um, they advanced uh, one year or some months, uh, World War II, and it uh, officially started in September 1939. But, um, the task of this person was to develop that perfect bombing, and Guernica was the target. It was the, the city that was chosen in order to carry out this experiment. So by reading what happened in Guernica, we understand how uh, other European bomb uh, cities were bombed during World War II, and not only by the Germans. Right? The allies, the future allies, were already also learning at the British Council, Stevenson, also another person that thought that this was already an international war, the so-called Spanish Civil War. And um, he went to Guernica to study uh, what happened there and wrote two reports that he sent, obviously, to London. So the military intelligence was learning, studying and learning from these uh, war experiments that the Germans were uh, were carrying out in the Basque Country and later on in Catalonia, the Germans and the Italians. So um, all that uh, is very useful in order to understand, for example, how Rotterdam was bombed. Rotterdam was bombed exactly, following exactly the same pattern as in Guernica, uh, with some little uh, changes in the methodology. Basically, it is the same um, uh, the same type of bombing, I may say. That changed, obviously, with the atomic bomb. But the theory was the, the same. The theory was to end a war by a blast, let's say, by a, by a, a, a great bombing. Uh, in 1936, obviously, no one knew what the atomic bomb was going to become. And then um, instead of dropping one bomb, it was a matter of dropping a lot of bombs uh, in a very, in a corral, what they called the aerial corral, a very compact place. And well, that was the, the methodology until 1945. And they were not uh, confused or, or, or incorrect. Indeed, World War II ended in 1945 by such a bombing. Yeah, so... Uh, in that sense, Gering was right. The next uh, war was going to be, victory was going to be achieved in the next war by by a terrible bombing. Should the Nazi atrocities against the Basques in Spain be considered genocide? Why or why not? Yes, absolutely. And um, the, the only reason uh, for not, let's say, considering what happened in the Basque country or Catalonia genocide is... Uh, misunderstanding of the concept of genocide. Uh, usually, um, some authors, uh, especially historians, believe that uh, genocide is about killing people. And yes, it is. Uh, when genocide happens, a lot of people are killed. But uh, genocide is much more than that. Uh, as Rafael Lemkin uh, described genocide, Rafael Lemkin is the the person who coined the word genocide, invented the word genocide and, and printed it for the first time in his book published in 1944 in Washington, D.C. Um, uh, the Axis Rule in Occupied Europe. According to him, genocide is the destruction 
of a human group, or if you want, the destruction of the national pattern of a human group. According to Lemkin and uh, scholars in genocide studies uh, in general, genocide is the destruction of what we understand today, uh, not as national pattern, but as, as the collective identity of a human group. So what the agent of genocide aims to destroy is not uh, people, it's not uh, the life of people necessarily, but uh, the idea of uh, that nation, the, their, what we can call culture, okay? The, the collective identity of these people. So their language, their traditions, their religion, their fashion symbols, uh, their political institutions, social institutions, etc. That is the aim of a genocide uh, agent, okay? The genocidal agent. And this is exactly what happened in the Basque country or Catalonia under uh, the Franco regime. Franco developed a policy of uh, prohibiting the Basque or the Catalan language, uh, Basque or Catalan traditions, Basque or Catalan political parties, Basque or Catalan um, social institution, cultural institution, music, everything as you can think of. Any uh, museum, for example, etc., were closed, etc. All that is genocide. Obviously, when a campaign of genocide happens, a lot of people are killed. Many people were killed in the Basque country, civilians especially, and also in Catalonia during this period of time, 1936 to, well, Franco's death in 1975. But uh, during the, let's say, speaking of the period that we are mentioning in this podcast, uh, we may say that from 1936 to 1945, um, concentration camps, exile, etc. I mean, those are common um, places when speaking of genocide. So there is no doubt that this was genocide. Uh, the problem is how we understand genocide. Uh, if we limit the sense of the word that uh, Lemkin provided to killing people, then well, obviously it would be genocide anyhow. But uh, but the scope is much broader. Eh? When speaking of genocide, we have to consider all that. Eh? The destruction of a human group as a whole, as a group, okay? And one of the things that, um, one of the main characteristics of the victims of genocide, in this case, the Basques or the Catalan, or the Jews during the Holocaust, is that these people were persecuted not because what they did, this is what, we understand in a democratic country, people are persecuted or imprisoned for because they have done something against the law. Uh, within a period of genocide, a campaign of genocide, people are persecuted and arrested, concentrated, killed, not because of what they are done or they are doing, they have done, but because of what they are. And this is what Franco was doing in the Basque country and Catalonia. People were being arrested, in some cases uh, shot to death for, for example, being Catalan or being Catalan nationalist or for speaking in Catalan, okay? For being, not for doing. That is one of the main characteristics of uh, these uh, genocidal episodes. What is your book's contribution to Holocaust studies and the history of the Holocaust? Well, here, I think that uh, there is a lot written and um, very good literature about the Holocaust. Um, indeed, is what I teach uh, in my classes in the Holocaust. And um, 
we have a lot of information about what happened in, in many concentration camps. Usually when I ask, this is one of the first questions that I ask in class, how many concentration camps you know? How many Nazi concentration camps you know? They mention, well, I don't know, maybe 10, 10 of them, Auschwitz-Birkenau, Treblinka, Dachau, Ravensbrück, uh, Buchenwald, um, in some cases, Magdianek, Belzec, etc. But uh, no one knows that the, the dimension of the repression against the Jewish population, especially the Jewish population and other minorities in Europe, was uh, to the scale of uh, 42,000 facilities. Uh, we are speaking of 42,000 more, uh, 42,000 plus facilities all over Europe, concentration camps, prisons, etc. So uh, the KL universe uh, during the Holocaust was immense, was vast, it was much, uh, much bigger than what we can envision. So there is a lot to write yet. Uh, it is a lot of informational literature about many of the cases uh, during the Holocaust, uh, speaking of exile, um, transportation, mobilization of people, concentration, etc., ghettos. But there is a lot to, to do. For example, there are concentration camps such as Pfaffenbol. I have interviewed uh, a survivor of that camp. Um, that almost unknown, and there is one book about that camp uh, among uh, others, and there are many camps that don't have not even an article written on them. So there is a lot to, to do uh, and to write yet about the many of the aspects of the Holocaust, including the Basque Country. And in this case, I think there is um, usually, well, there are camps such as Gors. Gors was an important camp, especially at the beginning of uh, this history because of the Madagascar plan. According to Himmler, one of the first ideas was not to bring um, the Jewish population to concentration camps in the East, where they were already living. Most of the uh, European Jewish population was located in Eastern Europe, but to bring them to Western Europe, in this case to Gors, and from there to the island of Madagascar. That was one of the first plans of the, of the SS office under Himmler. And um, well, uh, that uh, never happened, but uh, many Jewish people from Eastern Europe was, were brought to, to wars. And there are several books about it, but not that much about the repression that took place in the Basque country against the Jewish population. Also, there is a misunderstanding of what uh, the Jewish population was. Uh, they were living in the Basque country, they, many among them consider themselves Basques, but since the Basque population is traditionally understood as a, a Christian population, um, these people have not been, you know, uh, objects of uh, study as they should have been. And so well, with this book, we have tried to, to open, you know, a gate to the study of what happened to the Jewish uh, Basque population during the occupation, the Nazi occupation from 1940 to 1945. And uh, not only Jewish population, but also the, the, the political opponents to the, to the Nazi regime. And uh, well, from that regard, again, this is a, a, a chapter of the Holocaust, okay? A, a small chapter, I would say, of the Holocaust. The, the Jewish population in the Basque country almost disappeared, but we don't know yet how many people they were. Eh? We are speaking of a, a range from 3,000 to 15,000 people. 
which again is a small chapter if we think of the 17.5 million victims of the Holocaust as referred to by the Holocaust Museum in New York, excuse me, in Washington DC. We don't have, um, we have to forget about this 12 million number, it's much more than that. We know that with uh, certain data right now. Uh, and again, uh, probably in the future, it, it will add up to that. I mean, it, we and we will end up knowing that the victims of the Holocaust were more than 18 million people. So, well, this is again, one small chapter of that uh, terrible history of the Holocaust. Can you say more about the fate of victims at the Gorse camp? What did they suffer? Well, they suffer... <laughs> more than describable. Uh, I have uh, interviewed many victims of the Holocaust, not only in course, but in Auschwitz, uh, Buchenwald, uh, Dachau, Pfaffenbol, as I have said, uh, and uh, Mauthausen, and well, many other camps. And, um, well, I mean, <clears throat> the descriptions are terrible. So, all camps were death camps. Let's start by that. All camps were designed to kill people. So some authors like to make a difference between death camps and concentration camps, which I don't I don't see. Some camps were much more effective than others. Some camps uh, had this target of killing everyone uh, coming into the camp within two hours after arrival. That is the case of, for example, Treblinka or Birkenau, but um, in other camps, we may say that people survive for as long as maybe four months or, or maybe four years, but uh, uh, that was very, very strange. Uh, all the camps, all of them, were designed to kill people. And, um, and well, the circumstances in these camps are as horrible as we can imagine. Uh, uh, food was scarce, um, disease was rampant, uh, death by um, Famine and exhaustion was uh, terrible um, in the camps that there were a specific system of extermination, such as gas chambers, etc. Uh, death by execution was also one of the main causes of death that is general to all camps. So I would say that uh, we are focusing on one of the worst uh, episodes of genocide in the history of humankind. So uh, we may expect to be uh, facing some of the worst horrors that ever happened uh, in, in the history of the, the world of humankind. So that is it in a nutshell what we can, uh, we can find when investigating or analyzing these, these uh, events. Right now I am finishing a book on, on Birkenau, uh, but uh, it's a book about uh, the protocols for death, the mechanics of death in concentration camps, um, how uh, concentration camps were developed in order to kill the people that were in the camps and which were these protocols for killing. How does your book advance our understanding of war crimes and crimes against humanity? Well, um, they are, I think that from the perspective of genocide, in some cases, we have to understand uh, what is the, the definition, the definition of genocide as compared to crimes against humanity, war crimes, or uh, uh, other type of international crimes, uh, uh, what was considered a, a crime of aggression at the time, today, uh, 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 crimes against peace. 
and um, the Rome Statute, etc. Well, uh, there is a big difference between a Lemkin uh, definition of genocide and the legal definition of genocide. And that uh, has caused a lot of trouble, especially the, when um, it comes to the, uh, uh, let's say, trial of uh, people who had been accused of uh, genocidal activity. Um, from a legal point of view, the discourse is very different than from a historical point of view. Our book is a book of history. So we understand genocide in the way Lemkin described it and in the way it has happened in history. From a legal perspective, Hitler can, could not have been ever convicted as genocide as, as a genocidal agent in a tribunal, a court of justice. Why? Because the 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 Convention of Genocide was passed after World War II, and because of the principle of retroactivity, nothing happening before 1951, indeed, uh, can be considered from a legal standpoint uh, genocide. But obviously, that is not the historical reality. Genocide has happened uh, since ever. Uh, we have cases of genocide in prehistory. Um, the law has been always in delay, let's say, historically speaking, and it is not perfect. The humanitarian system, the humanitarian law uh, as a whole, the system as it works today is highly, highly problematic in many aspects, especially when dealing with genocide or crimes against humanity, etc. So from a historical point of view, we may say that um, any case of genocide is a crime against humanity. And that was uh, the point of view of many uh, um, lawyers and specialists in law of uh, the time. Uh, why passing a convention of genocide? That was a great uh, question. Uh, if we have already uh, a law on crimes against humanity, anything that we consider crimes against humanity is, uh, excuse me, just the opposite. Every crime of genocide can be considered a crime against humanity per se. Uh, per nature, you know, mass murder of people, concentration, mobilization of people, exile, etc. So, uh, well, I think that from that perspective, from the perspective of that uh, debate that has not been closed, I mean, there is still uh, an open debate in the academia. Uh, this book brings a lot of light on uh, what is genocide and what is the the relationship of these terms, uh, historically speaking, historiographically speaking, or legally speaking, and what is the the rupture uh, between these two worlds or fields of knowledge uh, is something that we go through in this book. What was Operation Feuerzauber? Can you tell us about its significance? Yes, uh, you know, usually we think that the humans, uh, human beings are rational and that the history is also a rational uh, chain of events that we can thus explain rationally, and it is not. And well, Fowersauber is one of these uh, magic fire operation. Fowersauber is um, uh, a German word or expression that means basically magic fire or circle, circle of fire. When Franco started the, the, the coup against the Spanish Republic, he needed planes. And uh, obviously he could not, uh, he understood that he couldn't uh, ask for planes to France or uh, the, 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 the Great Britain, the United Kingdom, or any other democracy in Europe. He was not a Nazi. Franco was not a Nazi. He was not a fascist. Eh? He was not an Italian fascist. 
some people say that in order to become a Nazi, someone has to read at least one book, uh, which is Mein Kampf by Hitler, or uh, so on. Franco never read almost anything, so he was a Francoist. Yes, that. Uh, some people claim that he was a national Catholic. That means that um, um, some a conception of politics um, melted into religion, into Catholic, uh, extreme right Catholic uh, ideology. That would be Franco. But uh, he understood also that uh, Hitler and Mussolini were the only people who could help him with that uh, cooping or rioting against uh, a democratic regime such as the Spanish Republic. So uh, he uh, sent a captain to Berlin asking for planes, but uh, everything was very poorly prepared. Uh, a captain Arrant arrived in Berlin looking for Hitler, and Hitler was not in Berlin to start with. Hitler was at the opera in Bayreuth. Uh, it was the week of the opera in Bayreuth, and you know, that is Wagner's uh, uh, birthplace. And he was there attending the opera. At the time, uh, the opera that he was uh, uh, playing, that uh, Bayreuth was playing, was uh, Siegfried. And the history of Siegfried uh, is, yes, the history of the Sleeping Beauty. Okay, Siegfried is a hero, and Brunhild is a, a heroine that has been incarcerated in Feuersauer. That uh, heroine, Brunhild, has been uh, punished by the gods to remain sleeping within a ring of fire or a magic fire. And Siegfried is the hero that breaks that um, punishment and enters into the ring of fire, kisses Brunhild. She, is, uh, well, she falls in love with uh, Siegfried and, and that's it. The Sleeping Beauty, basically that is it. So when Arantz arrived in Berlin uh, asking for Hitler, uh, no one, he was not there. So he asked, well, who can help me with planes? I mean, I need planes for Franco and I need someone uh, that helps me with the, with this. And someone told him, well, go speak to Goering. Marshal Goering is the minister of the year. He is in charge of the planes. Probably he can help you. And so he did. And Goering explained to Arantz that Hitler was in Bayreuth and that he was not there. So they had to wait until the opera was over, Siegfried. And uh, so they did. Goering phoned Hitler from Berlin and uh, told him whether he was willing to send planes to to Franco. Everyone was opposed to that. Goebbels was opposed to that. Von Bloomberg was opposed to that, the Minister of War. Everyone was opposed to help Franco, but Hitler in five minutes or ten decided that he was going to help Franco. Why? Because he was so excited uh, of uh, Wagner's uh, secret that he understood that uh, Germany was going to become Spain's secret and uh, Spain was going to become Germany's Brunhild. And that operation was going to be called Operation Magic Fire, Fowers uh, Hour. And that was yes, decided in five minutes in a very highly emotional way, as many other things in history. So that is the origin of the operation, the beginning of the um, you know, um, implication of uh, German forces in helping Franco during that war, which is a prologue to World War II. What does your book reveal about Francisco Franco and the Falange? What new insights are conveyed in your book? Yeah, well, I think that uh, the main... The main 
line of uh, of a description of what Franco was and his regime was is that that it was a genocidal regime, and this is not something that all scholars agree upon. And uh, in this case, well, I agree with uh, Paul Preston and Angel Viñas, among other historians. That is the case, as you know, Angel Viñas um, participated in this congress and. Uh, uh, well, uh, he he agrees with that, and the, the Franco regime is a genocidal regime. Paul Preston wrote that book, the the Spanish Holocaust, uh, describing the horrors of uh, the Franco regime. And I think that if we understand as scientifically what uh, a genocide means, there is no doubt about it. But uh, the main problem here is that unlike Germany. Uh, Spain was never denazified. Uh, Germany was denazified after World War II. These war criminals were taken to justice. Nuremberg happened. That educated people. And today, uh, all that is understood by the majority of the German society. That never happened in Italy or Spain. And uh, there is no word to say defrancoization or something like that. Today, still the second, uh, let's say, edition of the law of historical memory is being passed in in the Spanish parliament and also in the Basque and Catalan parliaments. And um, there are still many pro-Francoist historians that obviously deny that the Franco was a genocidal agent. Uh, denial in this case, also in the case of the Holocaust, is very strong. Uh, I would say that in some sense it is growing stronger in the last decades, uh, in parallel to you know the growing of uh, extreme right movements in Europe, especially in Europe, and uh, well, this is one of the main consequences and conclusions of the of the book that uh, the Spanish regime was a genocidal regime uh, that operated. Uh, in coordination with another two genocidal regimes, such as uh, Mussolini's Italy and and German and uh, Hitler Germany, also uh, other dictatorships uh, facilitated uh, Franco's um, war. Among others, Oliveira Salazar in Portugal, for example. So um, what, that is one of the first uh, con consequences or conclusions dealing with the. Uh, uh, the nature, let's say, of a Francoist regime in this book. What are some new directions for future research that you would like students and scholars to take up through engagement with your book? What are some topics of research you feel need to be undertaken? What can be done to attract new students and fresh ideas to the study of Basque experiences during World War II and the Spanish Civil War? Yes, well, they are, uh, to start with, uh, I think that um, the very nature of that war needs to be clarified. I think that, uh, again, Paul Preston's book on uh, the Spanish Holocaust is a good step in that direction. I think that um, there is a lot to, to, to study about the nature of that war, not only about the um, what the war was about, I mean, the implication of genocide in this uh, in this event, in this historical event, but also, as I have said, about the nature, the nature itself of the war. It was not 
uh, a war. It was much more than that. And during that war, a lot of people were killed in genocidal activity. So we may say that it was a campaign of genocide again, uh, at the same time that the war was being fought. It was a war can happen. It is not easy, but can happen without genocide happening at the same time. And in this case, it happened. Genocide happened. So it is much more than a war. It was much more than civil. And um, just an example of that would be the bombing, for example, of Barcelona in March 1938 happened by Italian av aviators. It was not... Spanish aviator in these units bombing Barcelona. That uh, gives you a clue of what kind of civil war was that. What kind of civil war is that in which the rebel aviation was uh, consisted of 90, almost 90%, 89% of stranger pilots <laughs> and planes. And 89% of Franco's Air Force was Italian or German. Well, that tells you that that was not a civil war. Okay, so it is not a war, it's much more than that. It is not civil, and it was not Spanish for the same reasons. It started as a Spanish conflict, that is right, between the Republicans, I mean, the democratic established regime, and the rioters, the Spanish church for the most, and also the military, part of the Spanish military and the Spanish police. But uh, it later developed into an international conflict. And I think that this is something that historiography needs to revise. Now, I never use that concept. The Spanish Civil War is incorrect uh, for many reasons. So, well, starting from there, I think that there is a lot to investigate. Uh, obviously, if we speak of concentration camps, for example, uh, many of these concentration camps need further investigation. Not only um, Nazi concentration camps in the Basque Country or in Catalonia, but also Spanish or Italian or French, Vichy French concentration camps need to be studied. Uh, the level of repression, the number of people killed, um, exile is another important aspect of this that needs to be, you know, studied in full. We don't know yet the number of people that were shot extrajudicially. Uh, uh, excavations are still taking place, excavations to, you know, recover the remains of these people that were shot in, during this period of time. Um, many things have to be done. Uh, regretfully, there is a lot to be done. Eh? And uh, I think that uh, we need uh, a lot of eyes on this subject still uh, to go. Yeah. Can you comment on the vicissitudes of, of Basque history before the Spanish Civil War? How did Basques in Spain evolve between the French occupation of Spain during the Napoleonic Wars and the 1930s. Yes, you know, if we make an approach to the history of the Basque Country before and after the French Revolution, we see that the, the history of the Basque Country between, let's say, 1530, 1530 and, uh, and 1789 is rather, uh, we may say, boring. <laughs> Nothing happens. Uh, it is a very peaceful society, no war, riots. Um, there are some what we call machinadas, some riots against the monarchy, but uh, all in all, the balance of people dead during that uh, almost uh, 300 period, uh, years period of time 
goes by the hundreds, maybe 500 people died uh, in violent events in the Basque country in these 300 years. After 1789, we have seven wars, four revolutions, uh, probably more than 65% of the period of time from 1789 to 2022 are dictatorship or authoritarian regimes. And uh, we're speaking of hundreds of thousands of exiles and tens of thousands of dead people. So something has happened, obviously, in the history of the Basque country before and after the French Revolution. And there it comes uh, genocide. Starting in 1791, uh, we can speak of the linguistic terror uh, imposed by the French uh, government of the time, eh? the, the Committee of Public Health. And um, well, the language started to be, uh, the language and the Basque culture in general started to be targeted, not only the Basque culture. Uh, we are speaking of the French Republic, so we may speak of the Vendée uh, episode of genocide. This is also an episode of genocide that many people deny being a genocide still today. Or what happened in the Vendée is similar to what happened in the Basque country in another level of uh, execution in the Vendée. We are speaking of hundreds of thousands of people killed alike eh, in the Basque country that we're speaking of thousands of people being killed uh, in Catalonia, in Alsatia, Lorraine, and many other parts of the of the territory of the French Republic. So there we may say that uh, the, the genocidal eh, events started to happen in the Basque country and uh, well, the conclusion, the, 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 the reflection uh, of this is this period of uh, war and terror that uh, we may follow up, okay, all over these 220 years of history. Not only, again, in the West Country, the West Country is just uh, an example of that. Uh, we focus, uh, for example, in Scotland, the repression that happened after the 45, the 1745, is also a genocide event. Uh, but according to many historians, it is not because of, I guess, in most of the cases, political reason and not historiographical or scientific reasoning, but political. Uh, and the same thing happened in, in other episodes of uh, European history. Okay, um, We cannot say that the, the Holocaust is an episode of genocide, uh, a chapter in the history of the repression of the Jewish people in Europe, but it is not the only episode of genocide that the Jewish people had suffered during millennia in Europe. Okay, We have 2,000 years, at least 2,000 years, it is more than that, eh, of uh, repression of this uh, group of people in Europe. And the Holocaust is a peak of physical genocide. This is what we can say, but uh, it is a chapter, a terrible, very bloody chapter in the history of the repression of these people in Europe. So we have to see everything in perspective. Uh, what, when speaking of Franco, obviously, uh, this is a chapter, a peak of physical genocide in the history of a genocidal event that uh, started much before that and that has not been uh, finished yet. It has not been closed yet. What does your book teach us about Benito Mussolini and his role in the atrocities? What new insights are revealed in the book about fascist Italy's involvement in the Spanish Civil War? Yes, well, many things. Uh, you know, uh, we can start again as uh, because of the um, constraints that we have of time. We may say that uh, starting from the very general, we may say that uh, first 
uh, it was a genocidal regime. And this is also something that the book provides data for, but also uh, the details of that involvement are important, how the Italian forces got involved in that war, helping Franco, and the reasoning behind that is important. Uh, Mussolini was desperate for glory, and um, he um, tremendously um, uh, exaggerated uh, victories in, uh, for example, in the Basque or Catalan front, in the Italian press of the time. The Committee of Non-Intervention is a terrible history of these um, events, and we go through it. I don't have time to you know, speak now about it in detail, but um, it was a big lie, a big political lie. I would say that it, it is still today one of the worst politically organized and uh, uh, supported uh, lies in the history of Western Europe of the 20th century. I mean, the, the Committee of Non-Intervention's uh, aim was to deny Italy's and Germans' intervention in the war helping Franco for three years. And there we have British, French, and uh, other uh, political leaders uh, speaking, lying to their own parliaments for three years. That was something that the Italian uh, uh, diplomats helped doing, and they were very involved uh, in the in the German side, it was Ribbentrop, one of the people most involved in the Committee on Intervention, Remy in the case of Italy and some other Italian diplomats. But this is also a very interesting chapter of, of this period of time. That lie, indeed, a journalist, a very famous journalist, once said after you know uh, covering this news that uh, people shouldn't believe anything until it is officially denied. <laughs> In this case, speaking of the bombing of Guernica, you know, as many other things, was absolutely officially denied. And then, you know, that it was true that the Germans and the Italians and the Spanish had bombed uh, Guernica. Okay, uh, let's say it this way. Italian and German planes under the orders of uh, Franco bombed Guernica. There was an official uh, lie saying that that never happened. Now we have the order. Franco's order. We have been working in archives for 20 years. When I say we, is well, uh, people I work with, for example, the Museum of Guernica. Um, it has a big archive with more than, well, now it is more than 70,000 documents that we have gathered all over the world in uh, American, European um, archives. And um, there, among these 70,000 documents, we have one, which is Franco's order to deny that Guernica was bombed. And that uh, order was uh, supported by the Committee of Non-Intervention, and the Italian diplomacy was very active on that regard. So this is other of the aspects that we cover in this book as for the Italian regime, but also the... Um, Terror bombing, develop of terror bombing, as you know, um, these doctrines of terror bombing started in Italy. Uh, they were developed in Italy during World War One and after, afterwards, and that's why the not the Hitler regime, the the Weimar Republic, the Weimar Republic sent Richthofen to study these theories of uh, terror bombing in Italy much before Hitler arrived to power. Uh, usually we make a big difference between the uh, Weimar Republic, the German Weimar Republic and the Hitler's regime. But the truth is that uh, Hitler didn't invent anything. Hitler just 
told the German people what they wanted to listen to. And uh, many of the things that happened later on started to have their roots in the Weimar Republic. Well, Wolfram von Richthofen was sent to Italy to study terror bombing, um, according to the Italian um, doctrines, uh, war doctrines, and this is also something that we have in this book, um, the Italian investment, let's say, in the uh, development on the doctrine of terror bombing during World War II, as it was going to be developed uh, later on. So, well, those are some of the things that we speak about, uh, you know, that we mentioned, that we analyze um, dealing with the Italian regime in this book. But there are many more things. Did any Basque refugees flee to North Africa? What became of them there? What were conditions like in Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia as they were experienced by Basque refugees? How did the rise and fall of Vichy France impact their fate? Well, there is a terrible history. And I would say that <clears throat> this is one of these chapters of history that need a lot of research. For example, what happened to the Jewish population in Morocco, in the Moroccan colonies at the time, European colonies and Morocco itself, or in Casablanca and other parts of um, of Africa at the time. Uh, in the list of concentration camps of the um, prisons and facilities in general of the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., we don't have, for example, CDL Ayachi. It is one of the camps that uh, was under the custody of the Vichy France, not uh, Nazi Germany, but with Nazi officers in the ground, on the ground, on the field. And um, that has barely been uh, researched. So that is one of the fields of, of uh, history that um, historians need to, to visit, to revisit maybe. And well, this is the history of my family, for example. And my grandparents were in one of these concentration camps. Um, when uh, the when Franco won that war of 1936 uh, in the spring of 1939, many uh, Spanish, Catalan, Basque Republicans escaped to uh, France. This case to the French Republic, until the Nazis occupied Western Europe. Uh, when the Nazis occupied Western Europe, they had to leave. They had to escape. A uh, Jewish population in in both sides, eh, the occupied France or the Vichy France, were at big uh, risk. And uh, obviously, political opponents of Nazi Germany, among them Catalans and Basques, were in high risk. We are speaking of thousands, tens of thousands of people eh, in that territory. So the persecution started right away. Uh, in this case, I can speak of the case that I know the best. This is my grandparents' case. They had two children. <clears throat> Two children in occupied in the occupied West country, and well, my grandfather was called by the German authorities to 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 visit the the headquarters of the of the Gestapo in the West country. At the time he was called, they didn't know much about him. So after the interrogating and torturing him, obviously, they didn't get as much information as they needed in order to arrest him and send him to Mauthausen. So um, that was the agreement between Franco and, and Miller, the head of the Gestapo, uh, to send all these political opponents to Mauthausen. They were all considered Spanish, no matter if they were Basque or Catalan or Spanish, they all were in the same legal let's say, uh, framework. So he got to escape and uh, he went to Marseille with uh, his wife. Uh, they have to leave their two 
daughters, they were very young, so they, they were not even two years of age, so they have to leave them in the Basque country under the custody of um, uh, a sister of my grandmother, because they they didn't know where they, <clears throat> they were heading to. I mean, when they arrived in Marseille and they went into the boat, they knew that they were going to the Americas, but they didn't know where Mexico, Venezuela, Argentina, Brazil, it, it didn't matter. Right? It was not that much of where to go, but uh, what to escape from. They were not escaping from Franco. In this case, they were escaping from Hitler. Uh, uh, half of the boat in which they were uh, were uh, uh, Jewish people in the same circumstances. They have left everything they had in Europe, probably family members as well. And they well, they went to Casablanca, but then uh, World War II started, the Battle of the Atlantic, so it was very difficult to cross the Atlantic without a Navy third. Uh, the only way of doing these trips was through a, a neutral uh, boats, Argentinian boats, Portuguese boats, etc. So meanwhile, they were there, they were arrested by the Vichy authorities and sent to concentration camps. Many people died in these concentration camps, as always happened. Um, this is a matter of... Uh, money in many cases, poor people died before. Within this uh, group of poor people, children, elderly people died before young, strong people. And um, the few of them who could escape these concentration camps took these boats and went to the Americas. But there, there is a big difference uh, between the Christian Europeans and the Jewish Europeans. When they arrived, for example, in countries such as uh, Argentina, uh, the Jewish people were not allowed to go off these boats, and many died. It is a terrible history. In, in light of um, what you were alluding to, um, what became of Basque refugees in Mexico in particular, as well as Argentina, Uruguay, Venezuela. Yeah. What did what did Basques experience in Latin America as refugees? What countries did they flee to and what were their experiences like in these countries? Well, they were much luckier. You know, in these countries were Christian countries and um, uh, the Basque population in these countries were very established, well established. So, for example, the president of Uruguay was Basque. The president of Argentina was Basque. Um, some of the ministers of the government in Venezuela were Basque. Um, there were very well-positioned Basque politicians here in the United States, for example, in the American West. So uh, the Basque government was very successful in signing agreements for these Basque refugees in these countries. So, for example, when my grandparents arrived in Argentina, um, they had the Minister of Agriculture waiting for them in the port, and they were very well received. In two months, they had the Argentinian full citizenship, full Argentinian citizenship. The same thing happened in Uruguay, Venezuela, and some other countries, uh, in, even in, in some Caribbean countries as well. So they were uh, privileged uh, because of these, um, let's say, uh, agreements and diplomatic political agreements between the Basque government and uh, South American governments, and also the US administration. So 
these people arrived in with no problem to these countries. Uh, for example, in Mexico, also Spanish and Catalan uh, refugees were very well received. But as I said, in many countries, U.S. population were not well received. This is not the case, for example, of Uruguay. In Uruguay, Alberto Guani was the Minister of uh, Justice, and he developed uh, a, a humanitarian, let's say, uh, understanding of the international law, and uh, Uruguay accepted and received uh, Jewish uh, people, but not Argentina. And especially even the situation under Perón became even worse. So, for example, I interviewed um, Jewish um, survivor of the Holocaust that after arriving into Buenos Aires and being allowed to take off from the, the boat, uh, he was sent in a closed uh, train with no windows. I mean, all the windows, the doors, everything was closed with uh, with um, uh, you know chains, etc., and sent directly to Chile because Chile was another country friendly to the Jewish population. So you can imagine for a person that has suffered uh, the horrors of the Holocaust, what meant to be sent into a train uh, like cattle um, all over Argentina. It is a long trip. Uh, it takes days to to reach uh, Chile. So that was the experience of many of the. Jewish population in in the Americas, and many among them were returned in these trips, in these boats, to Europe. Some of those boats were sunk by the U-boats, uh, German U-boats, and the ones arriving back to uh, Africa, the, these people were sent to concentration camps, and many died there. What was the role of the Vatican in the plight of the Basques? How did the Catholic Church respond? What does this teach us about the behavior of the Vatican during World War II and the Spanish Civil War? What questions about the Spanish Civil War? Well, yeah. Sorry, what questions does what questions about the Catholic Church does attention to the, their response to the Basque tragedy answer? Yeah, yeah. you know uh, the person to answer this question uh, was Ilari Raguer. Ilari Raguer was a monk, a great friend of mine, one of the best uh, historians of uh, the involvement of the Vatican uh, in this war, and not only the Vatican, but also the, the Spanish church uh, helping Franco. He has the best ever written books on the matter. He died just uh, two years ago, so our last book has been dedicated to him. Um, and uh, a great friend and a great scholar. And um, in this book, he speaks about the Vatican archives and the documentation that we can find about this topic. Um, uh, very interesting topic uh, dealing with the, with the war. Well, the Vatican um, aligned with Franco from the beginning. It was uh, the position of the Vatican was pro-Francoist, openly pro-Francoist. Uh, both uh, popes. Um, were very much involved in the with the Francoist regime and uh, you know the extreme right, let's say uh, Catholic uh, ecclesiastical um, hierarchy in Spain. Okay, the cardinal, the head of the Spanish state of the time, was uh, uh, Cardinal Goma, eh? and uh, Cardinal Goma was uh, an extremist uh, fanatic, and. Uh, the, the the Vatican was in direct contact with him, so 
Pius XI and Pius XII, especially this last one, were much uh, in contact with uh, with Goma. Um, Pius XII, before becoming a, a pope, was already one of the persons involved in uh, negotiating with the Francoist uh, all sort of uh, political diplomatic agreements. And um, well, the Basques were an anomaly in the in the war. The Francoist propaganda was that he was fighting atheists and communists and so on. That was not not true, not even in the case of the Catalans. There were many Christian Catalans. There were also atheists in Catalonia, but the numbers are uh, overwhelming uh, in this regard. I mean, the number of atheists in Catalonia in 1937 was much smaller than the number of uh, Christian Catalans uh, at the time. Anyhow, the propaganda was that he was facing atheists, communists, Bolshevik people, etc. The Basques were not that. Uh, the Basque government was a Christian government. It was a, a Christian democrat uh, movement, very aligned with Maritain's idea of what uh, Christianity should be. It was a social democrat Christianity, much more to the left, let's say, than the Francoist uh, Catholicism. But even though um, Basque were openly and well known because of being Catholic and Christian, so. Um, that part of the war was uh, an anomaly, as I say, uh, when speaking of Franco's propaganda. So Franco did everything in his hand to uh, break the relationship of the Basque government with the Vatican. The, the relationship between the Basque, the Basque government and the Vatican were positive, were quite good for the most, but uh, when it came to align themselves in the war, we may say that the great guideline of the Vatican was uh, Franco. So there is not much that we can say about it. Uh, we also speak a little bit in, the, in this book and in other books, uh, but in this book about uh, Antonuti. Antonuti was the delegate of the Pope to to Franco, and he was in charge of uh, returning the uh, refugee children, in this case Basque refugee children, to the Basque country, uh, no matter what. So we they are explaining about the falsification of uh, parents' signatures and many other things that Franco's officials and Antonuti among them did in order to force these children back into the Basque country because it was against the logic of the Francoist propaganda, uh, having more than 32,000 children, refugee uh, in all over Europe, United Kingdom, France, Switzerland, etc., Belgium, um, the Soviet Union, um, in order to protect them from the Francoist regime. That was something that Franco didn't like. So in order to make them return, uh, uh, some parents were uh, in prison, so it was easy for them to make force them uh, to sign letters to make their children come back to the Basque country. In many cases, the children came back to the Basque country and were sent to special facilities to um, indoctrinate these children, so special camps of the phalanx, etc. But that was the role of the church for the most uh, in the war. And, and later on, uh, <laughs> I mean, in this prologue to World War II, uh, the behavior of the church later on is going to be very similar. What kinds of atrocities were committed against Basque children? 
Can you share any stories and examples? Yeah, there are many. Uh, uh, Terror bombing is one of them. Uh, for example, I can speak also here from from family. My grandfather was the, the secretary of education in charge of primary education. So that means that he was in charge of uh, locating schools. Uh, and obviously, uh, when the war started, they thought that big uh, cities were dangerous for children and also industry. I mean, having uh, schools next to factories, etc., was not a good idea because probably those were going to become uh, targets of the uh, German, Italian, and Spanish aviation and machine gunning from the air, etc. So these uh, schools were uh, located in a small open towns. Uh, cities and towns that were not uh, military targets per se. One of those was Guernica. So Guernica had a school for children. And obviously these places, when these places started to be targeted by the German or the Italian air forces, um, well, many children started to die. So the only option, especially after the bombing of Guernica, where many children died, uh, the only option, terrible deaths, by the way, uh, the only option was to take these children off the country. So about 32,000 children, probably 36,000 children. Uh, we have 32,000 children with uh, names and, and surnames. These numbers are growing uh, as uh, you know research in this field uh, advances. Uh, so between 32,000 and 36,000 children were sent to, to exile mm-hmm. uh, as refugee children with no family. And they were sent alone. More or less half of them never returned. I have interviewed some among them, and the experiences were rough. Okay, uh, you can understand, for example, many among them, many of these children were uh, Spanish immigrants coming to the Basque Country. Uh, this is a uh, very low-income families. Some of them didn't know how to write or read, for example. I interviewed a, a refugee child in um, London uh, who never returned. And uh, he was sent there when he was about 14 years of age. And um, well, uh, he had to write to his brother. His brother read these letters to their parents, and then their parents just uh, dictated uh, the letters, the answers to his brother, and he sent them to London. Obviously, this was only possible after World War II. During World War II, there was no communication, so sending letters were almost impossible. And uh, well, this uh, meant for many of these children just a r- complete rupture with their families. Uh, about half of them uh, never returned. And then now there are associations of children um, all over Europe uh, of Basque refugee children. It is the most massive children um, refugee children operation in the history of Europe. Uh, the, the, uh, up to that time, okay? So up to 1937, never uh, so many children had been deported, let's say, from their countries in order to save their lives uh, because of the bombing uh, uh, campaign of uh, Germany, in this case, mostly Germany, the Basque country, um, abroad. So it was very complex. Um, the, the 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 fiscal part of that is also very interesting how the Basque government could cope with expenses of having 32,000 children abroad. That was very difficult. And, um, well, many children died. There is an anecdote. Um, there is a very famous um, 
Spanish po poet. His name is Cernuda. And uh, he was in, in one of these Basque refugee camps helping as a reader. He liked to read to these children. And one day, one of the children asked him to go <clears throat> to read uh, for him. And uh, so he did. So there he was, Cernuda, reading for this uh, child, probably 16 years of age or something like that. And um, <clears throat> well, when he finished reading, uh, the, children, the child told Cernuda, now please uh, turn turn back <clears throat> because I am going to die. And he died. He didn't want Sarnuda uh, to look at him while he was dying. What does your book reveal about intelligence operations during the Spanish Civil War and World War II? What role did Axis intelligence play in the atrocities committed against Basques in the Spanish Civil War? What contribution did Basque refugees make to allied intelligence operations in Latin America? Yeah, well, that is a very interesting chapter of the book, uh, you know. Um, well, to start with, uh, we may say that um, after uh, war uh, was over in the Basque country in 1937, many people went to exile. We know with names and surnames that at least 150,000 people went abroad. That means uh, about 12% of the vast population of the time, including these 32,000 children. So 150,000 people is a lot. Among them, there were about 2,000 soldiers. So more than that. But uh, after the war was over, the Basque government still kept, let's say, a force of 2,000 soldiers. Obviously, uh, these people could not be in uniformed and armed with weapons in France after the war was over, not only the Basque country in 1937, but in Catalonia in 1939. So these 2,000 people were as uh, civilians in, uh, in France eh, as Basque refugees from 1937 or 39 to 1940 when the German occupation happened. After the German occupation, still about the, most of these 2,000 people were in, uh, in occupied territory, in this case in France, and uh, the British were facing a very harsh time, the British and the French, obviously, France was occupied, and the United Kingdom was in a very difficult position. Um, the United Kingdom was facing Germany in 1940 uh, in a very precarious way. Uh, at that time, not so many countries had a big force of uh, secret agents in uh, in the field. The United Kingdom didn't have many, and the United States either. Indeed, the OSS, the American OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, was created in 1942. So until 1942, officially, there was no a secret agent office. Okay, something that we can call an office. Um, as dealing with the American administration, but the, the, the situation of the British was similar and even less agents on the field, I mean, in occupied uh, uh, France. Having 2,000 people was a lot. I mean, it is 2,000 trained ex-former eh, soldiers, uh, very loyal to the cause. Eh? All these people were Basque nationalists or very close to Basque nationalist movements, if not maybe socialist or, or even communist. So they were very ideologically speaking, very loyal. Most of them were members of the Basque nationalist party. That means Christian Democrats. Okay. And uh, 
Well, uh, the Basque government in exile uh, offered the British administration uh, to help in World War II by using these 2,000 men uh, in favor of the Allies. And uh, Churchill's government accepted in exchange of uh, accepting the independence of the Basque uh, country. And that was agreed in July 1940. Now, things and uh, you know the British intelligence is is very intelligent. We may say that the the, the United Kingdom has won many wars in the history of uh, at least in modern history um, because of their use of uh, intelligence, uh, intelligence, the use of intelligence you know, of military intelligence. So. The alternative to this uh, treaty or uh, agreement with the Basques was to pay uh, Franco's general to keep Franco off the war, eh, of World War II. That was much cheaper. Eh? Uh, obviously, keeping Franco off the war uh, meant uh, that in order of uh, in order of um, uh, landing in. Uh, in, uh, let's say, southern Spain and occupying all of Spain, crossing the Pyrenees, capturing Paris and going run to Berlin, the Allied troops could land as they did in southern Italy or Normandy. Um, a much cheaper operation that was going to save a lot of lives. So the question was, how much do we need to pay to these uh, Spanish generals monthly in order to convince Franco to remain neutral. Franco was absolutely convinced that he had to become part of the Axis, unlike it has been written until now. And Angel Viñas is the historian that had got these archives, has for the first time um, studied this, uh, this, this uh, let's say, uh, chapter of uh, the British intelligence uh, dealing with the Spanish regime uh, during this time, period of time. How much do you think each one of these generals was paid monthly for almost three years uh, from London, directly from London, in order to convince Franco not to uh, become an active actor during World War II? Have you a number in your mind? <laughs> in actual in actual money, let's say speaking in euros, it would be more than one million euros a month. Per general, we are speaking of about 32 generals uh, of the Spanish government. Viñas has a book written on that. The title is Sabornos, and there you have all the documentation on this. It's very interesting. Uh, uh, but all that money was nothing comparing to an operation for occupying uh, the whole of Spain if uh, Franco became uh, an active, let's say, uh, member of the Axis. So that was uh, the logic of the British intelligence. Another important part of the dealing with this uh, British intelligence is that during uh, when uh, the United States became an active actor during World War II in favor of the Allies after Pearl Harbor, then uh, the Bas Secret Services also reached an agreement with the with the Americans, and then a network of uh, Basque spies became very active in South America. Especially, um, their mission was to neutralize Nazi, fascist, and Spanish uh, agents in Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, in countries in which uh, authorities were 
maybe thinking of uh, joining the Axis. You know that the, Argent the Argentinian government, depending on what government we speak, but uh, the Peron government or the government of uh, the generals after 1942, the colonels is called, uh, the government of the colonels, was quite openly pro-Axis. So, well, the, 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 these Basque agents, the main uh, target was to to neutralize these actions and make sure that these countries remain neutral or joined the the ally forces as they did in many countries. For example, in Venezuela, in Uruguay, in Chile, these Basque agents were very successful in Argentina as well. And uh, they were operating all over from Mexico to Southern Argentina. And we don't know how many they were, but by the thousands. Many among them priests, by the way, because the Nazi uh, or the Axis propaganda in South America was that most of the Axis countries were uh, Catholic. Italy was an, a Catholic country. Spain, pro-Axis, openly pro-Axis, was a Catholic country. And Austria was a Catholic country. Germany was a Christian country. In uh, especially the South, etc., quite Catholic as well. Meanwhile, the Allies were not Catholic countries. Uh, the United States or, or the United Kingdom especially were Christian but non-Catholic. So that's why many of the Basque spies in South America were, were priests, bishops. The only cardinal that America had at the time was operating for the Basques. So very interesting, yeah, very interesting topic. Very unknown for the uh, English readers and yeah, interesting. How did the atrocities against Basques impact Basque women? Can you share some examples? Yeah, well, women usually uh, suffered, you know, in these circumstances as much as men. And uh, usually they are targeted for rape. That is uh, something that happens in all wars and, and most cases of uh, genocide, if not all of them. So we may say that... Uh, Suffering of men and women in these uh, episodes is very similar, but uh, it has some, you know, different aspects or specific aspects. Uh, in this case, well, raping in Spanish prisons obviously was massive and rampant, and uh, uh, these women were uh, targeted exactly the same as men. So women that were uh, suspicious of political activity or uh, political uh, ideological approach, be it Basque nationalist, Catalan nationalist, socialist, or whatever, uh, were uh, taken to prison or shot. Uh, uh, and well, many went to exile. Uh, out of these 150,000 that I have mentioned, 150,000 Basque people going to exile, probably, most probably, half, at least half, are women. So... Uh, they suffered the same terror um, as, as men. In concentration camps, uh, we may say the same. Uh, women were usually uh, targeted in uh, some of the camps, such as uh, well, Ravensbrück, especially for women, but um, in Birkenau, uh, most of them were targeted for dying at arrival. That means within two hours after arrival in some camps, in some others, it is a little bit more than that. Um, because they were not as strong as men, usually because of that. But um, for the rest, yes, we may say that um, they suffered a lot. I mean, uh, they were part of the, these uh, communities that suffered repression during this time. So um, Basque, Catalan, Jewish women uh, suffered a lot, Spanish women, obviously, under the Spanish regime. 
Um, another thing that we may say is that these regimes were uh, highly uh, regulated in a way. I mean, the, the legislation of these countries, Germany, Italy, Spain, relegated uh, women to the category of objects of the law and not subjects of the law. So according to the Francoist legislation, women were not allowed to have property, to work, etc. That was not, for the most, applied. Uh, later on, after some years, uh, war, women worked during the Francoist regime. But according to the law, um, they were excluded. Basically, the role of women, according to these regimes, was to become mothers, depending on the regime. In the case of the German regime, it was to become mothers. In the case of the Italian or the Spanish regime, it was to become um, wives, housewives, and mothers as well. Uh, there are slight differences, but well, for the most, the law for this um, of these uh, regimes is well the one it is repressive and uh, and uh, uh, segregating women from uh, societies. How did Basques in Spain fare in Spain between 1939 and 1945? Can you comment on what this reveals about Spanish history during World War II? Yeah, uh, well, Basque people in um, in Madrid, for example, in the uh, in, Ma in the Madrid resisting, let's say the the the, the attacks of the of the rebel forces, um, they have good experiences. They were not prosecuted or anything like that. Catalans or Basques in Spain in the Spain uh, controlled by the Republican uh, uh, forces. We cannot say the same as for that part of uh, um, uh, the Spanish state controlled by the rebels. But in that case as well, we, we have to underline that uh, there was a part part of the Basque population that uh, supported the regime. So, for example, in the case of Navarre, the Carlist, the traditionalist, let's say the right wing movements, uh, supported the, the Francoist uh, uh, coup. So, well, they were considered uh, allies. Basques or not, uh, that was secondary, and they were considered allies. So these people didn't suffer any repression. Now, Basque nationalists or, or Basque Republicans in general in um, in enemy territory were uh, well, just captured, uh, um, taken to prison, and, uh, and many among them were shot, uh, especially former soldiers, etc. Well, the, the the level of repression of the Spanish regime was very high. So many men were shot, young men, uh, because of, well, on ideological grounds in most of the cases. What were the vicissitudes of Basque history in Spain under the Franco dictatorship during the post-World War II years? How were they treated? What kinds of human rights abuses did they suffer? Yeah, that is a good question. Going to the that uh, relates to the first question that you have uh, posed. <clears throat> the Francoist regime was a genocidal regime, so the goal of that regime was to make Catalonia and the Basque Country disappear as nations. Okay, uh, for that many people were killed, many more people were incarcerated, many more people were exiled. 
especially these people linked, ideologically linked or ideologically aligned uh, with uh, movements, um, nationalist movements or cultural movements, etc. As in any other genocidal uh, regime or under any other genocidal regime, the Basque language was forbidden, also the Catalan language was forbidden. It was forbidden to speak in Catalan, to write in Catalan or in Basque. It was forbidden to rehearsal in Basque, for example, I, I don't know, in theaters, etc. Um, Basque libraries and Catalan libraries were porched of books that were considered to be dangerous or pernicious or, or you know, uh, anti-Francoist in any regard or anti-Spanish. Um, and that involves many books, books of fiction, any book written in Catalan or Basque for, to start with, and many other books, histories of the Basque country, histories of Catalonia, etc. Monuments, many monuments were destroyed and others were changed and uh, symbols of Francoism and uh, the Hispanic, let's say, if beliefs were um, uh, said, were built in the Basque Country or in Catalonia, movement, uh, for example, the squares dedicated to Franco or to Mola or to Sanjurjo or other generals of the, of the rebel army, of the rioters were uh, erected. Um, Museums also were opened with, uh, for example, weaponry taken to the enemy or things like that. And when we say open, uh, we are saying opening them in 1936, and they, some of them are still there. Um, street names, etc., are not completely gone. Uh, street names or or square names in uh, in the name of Mola, etc., are still uh, existing. Uh, and the same thing can be said about Italy, for example. It is not just uh, the case in Spain, it is the case in many other countries in the world. Um, well, so, you know, everything that we can consider a genocidal um, regime is happened. Basically, the repression of Basque, what we can call Basque culture, okay? So Basque music, Basque language, Basque literature, Basque art, but everything was um, repressed. And that means that uh, many people were sent to prison, that some people were shot. Uh, the level of uh, people being killed or the number of people being killed uh, started to go down in 1943, 1944. And many thousands of people, as far as we know, only in Navarre, which is one of the territories in the Basque Country, at least 3,500 people were killed in three years. Uh, the level of people, the number of people being killed in years after uh, was going to be lower than that. But Franco died killing. So the year he died in 1975, uh, many people uh, were shot to death. Okay, so the regime was um, highly repressive and, and uh, harsh on Basque and Catalans and also on Spanish people for 40 years. Uh, the the difference between uh, what the, the regime was about in Spain, in the Basque Country or in Catalonia, is a matter of uh, genocidal or not, eh, episodes of genocide or not. In uh, Spain, uh, the repression was uh, ideological and uh, religious. In uh, the case of the Basque Country and Catalonia, was exactly as ideological or religious as in Spain, but it added this ingredient of um, 
repressing the Vascos, the Catalan culture. But I may add, uh, this happened during the Francoist regime because the Francoist regime was a dictatorship. But that, that happened also during the the, uh, the the years after the, the, the World War II was over in France. I mean, the French Republic is a democratic country. No one denies that. But uh, still today, the Basque language or the Catalan language or the Occitan language or the Breton language are not allowed in public education. So... The, all these languages are still being repressed. Meanwhile, the French Republic spends millions of euros, uh, millions, hundreds of millions of euros uh, promoting the French language in Africa, in uh, former colonies. Um, in France, uh, these languages are not allowed, are prohibited in public education. And that is genocide. So genocide happens in dictatorships, but also in uh, democracies. What were the similarities and differences between Christian and Jewish Basque sufferings in Nazi concentration camps? What were the similarities between sufferings experienced by Basques from within Spain and Jewish sufferings among deportees from elsewhere in Eastern and Western Europe in concentration camps. Yeah, I, I think that this is just um, again a chapter of the Holocaust. So mm. we may say that uh, the worst thing a person could be in a concentration camp was a Jewish person. Uh, Jewish people were um, targeted to, to die. Also, Russian Russian prisoners of war, for example, or Russian civilians were. Um, targeted to, to be killed on the spot. Uh, political opponents as well, and many political opponents died in Nazi concentration camps, of course. But uh, uh, to start with, let's say the framework and the ideology of the Nazi regime made of these people uh, primary targets. And uh, well, uh, at least, at least half of the people who died uh, in the Holocaust were Jewish people, at least 6 million people, probably a little bit more than that, okay? according to the numbers provided by the Holocaust Museum of Washington, D.C. Uh, so they are the first victims, and the legislation in Germany was highly anti-Semitic, but it was not only in Germany, and it was not only in the past. We can speak about anti-Semitism today in Europe, it's rampant, but... Um, well, uh, the legislation in Germany was especially harsh uh, on the Jewish population. So in Nazi concentration camps, the, 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 the repression against the Jewish population was especially harsh. Um, that said, obviously, political opponents also died in concentration camps. And, and in the case of Mauthausen is a well-known case for, uh, it was the, the, the destiny for many of these Spanish, Catalan, or Basque a political dissident that were uh, uh, arrested by the Gestapo or the SS or any other uh, um, police uh, unit in uh, Europe, occupied Europe, and sent to Mauthausen. This agreement was signed by um, the Francoist regime and the German uh, uh, government, in this case, Miller was the head of the, the police unit. And uh, according to that uh, agreement and that Franco signed, um, every prisoner, uh, any dissident, any political opponent that was considered to be a Spanish, a Spanish citizen or whatever, it didn't matter whether it was Catalan or Basque or Spanish or Galician or whatever, that was arrested by the 
German authorities was not going to be sent back to, to Franco, but to Marhausen, to Nazi concentration camps. In general, most of them were sent to Marhausen. So many died there. Some survived, but uh, many died, obviously. How has your research been received among Basques living today? How have second and third generations of Basque victims responded to your book? How have the responses been different among first-generation direct survivors and among their children and grandchildren? The, the, the response has been great. Uh, um, there is a huge interest for these topics. Um, we have got all sorts of uh, answers, responses, etc. Uh, the book, as you know, is uh, available for free online. So if someone visits the repository of the UNR, the University of Nevada in Reno, um, will find the book and can download it uh, in a PDF format and, uh, and go through it. And we have had thousands of downloads um, by now. I mean, the book has been very well uh, spread, let's say, all over the world. So... The response has been very good, but we have had some special responses that we can we may mention. For example, uh, there was this man who was looking for the body of his grandfather. Um, he had never known where his grandfather was buried or uh, where his body was, and uh, guided for some of the information that we gave uh, in this book. Um, he could uh, detect the place in which uh, he died uh, during an aerial bombing in this case. And uh, recently he wrote to me telling me that um, the, the, there has been um, a, a body has been found in the place where we thought or he thought, according to his investigation, his grandfather was uh, killed and buried. Well, maybe, maybe now we are waiting, he is waiting for the ADN evidence, and uh, maybe we have found that that person. So this is one of the many examples of personal involvement, let's say, with, with the book. But apart from that, you know, the general readers are, are happy with the book, and um, uh, well, uh, we we have kept collaborating after doing this book. Uh, we have uh, we organized a second conference with the University of Barcelona on the pro-independence movements in Catalonia and in the Basque Country, which is a follow-up a little bit of this. So it is uh, what has happened, as you have said, in the Basque Country and Catalonia from uh, the French Revolution to today, that is in the case of the Basque Country, in the case of Catalonia, a little bit before that, the, let's say the genocidal campaign in Catalonia started right at the same time as in Scotland, in the 1700s, early 1700s, and uh, until today. So what is that we can call a cultural genocide or um, social economic genocide, etc., and then uh, explaining why these uh, pro-independence movements are so uh, vivid, are so uh, supported by societies in Catalonia, the Basque Country, and Scotland. So, and the different uh, routes that each one of these nations have um, um, adopted uh, when seeking independence. So, um, that is the second volume that we have just recently published. And now we are thinking on a third one. So, 
good collaboration between the University of Nevada and the University of Barcelona keeps on uh, its way. So it has opened uh, uh, windows of uh, investigation for different fields in this uh, aspect. How are the atrocities against the Basques remembered in Spain today? What does your book reveal about collective memory in Spain? Yeah, see, this is a little bit of the the limits of this book. And this book was a, a book focused on history and what happened then. But because of this, uh, this year we organized a, a conference in the Basque Country, completely in Garnica itself, about uh, the law of historical memory. So we are going to have this book published next year. And also we have done that in collaboration with the University of Barcelona. This is the last one, the third one, the third conference that we organized together. And in this book, yes, we analyze in full what historical memory is, what is a rem remembrance. Um, basically the framework, if you want, of all this is, um, all these people were killed during that uh, terrible time, and justice was never uh, practiced. It was never, uh, never happened. Okay, uh, none of the members of the Spanish military, for example, involved in atrocities, etc., was ever convicted of anything. It was never tried either. So. The only way that we have today of making justice is through historical memory, remembering the victims, recognizing them as victims, and uh, trying to recover uh, uh, what happened at the time and make it known. So this is the third conference about, and um, this book is going to be published in next year, probably by the fall of 2023. The conference took place in Guernica uh, during the commemoration of the bombing, uh, in these days of April of uh, 2022. And um, it is divided in different chapters. So there we analyze the, the law of historical memory in Madrid, in the Spanish parliament, the Basque law of historical memory and the Catalan law of historical memory. And we compare, it, we, uh, compare uh, the three of them, uh, what, uh, what the different competences each one of them have, why it is necessary to have a Basque law of memory and also Spanish law of memory, which are the sites of memory, these places of, of memory that uh, need to be um, taken care of. Uh, what about museums, uh, libraries, etc. cetera, uh, historical memory in education at schools, and some other aspects of that. So this is a completely different, let's say, topic that we never uh, um, analyzed in this book in full. Okay, we mentioned that, but uh, just uh, roughly. Um, in this third volume, we are going to do it in, in, in depth. Thank you so much for your time and your erudition and how eloquently you communicated with us today in this dialogue. I could not be more grateful to have engaged with you in a conversation regarding this remarkable and spectacular book and this absolutely stellar and precious contribution to scholarship and to education. Thank you wholeheartedly. Thank you to you, Irene. And again, it is something that we need to push uh, the, the Holocaust as a whole and uh, the Armenian genocide uh, 
Cambodian genocide. I mean, all these episodes of uh, terrible episodes of history uh, need to be revisited. There is always something to be done, uh, to be written. Uh, the the memoirs of these people need to be retaken, listened to. I think that these things need to be taken to schools, and uh, our schools should be taught in a much deeper way, maybe, and that it has not been done. So, you know, the renaissance of this, uh, again, extreme fanatic movements is, I guess, in a good part due to the fact that uh, these people are ignorant of what uh, Nazism meant and uh, what kind of, what volume of human suffering it uh, generated. So thank you to you for uh, allowing me to, to speak to the public and, and you know, make uh, this work known. Thank you. It's my humble honor. Um, can you tell us a bit more about your current research before we go? What are you working on now that this book is done? And can yeah, you well, provide some yeah. insight into it? I'm working on two two books, or maybe three, three projects, three big projects uh, for the near future. Uh, one uh, of them is um, um, a work on uh, what we can consider the first word of the Luftwaffe. It is the the operation of terror bombing of the Luftwaffe in the Basque Country in 1937, in the spring 1937. So uh, how it was developed, uh, which were the technical advances that uh, they got to develop by um, conducting these uh, war experiments and all that quite in detail. And uh, that is almost 100% based on archival material that I have gathered by doing the atlas of the bombings in the Basque Country that I finished and published a year ago. So that is probably the first book that I have in mind. And uh, I am going to write it. I have already written it in English, and now I will send it to some publisher. Then the the second one is uh, concentration camps, Nazi concentration camps. But in these cases, focused on, the, as I have said before, the protocols, the mechanics of death. I mean, what was the protocol, especially in Birkenau, but uh, well, you know, a little bit uh, with the references to other uh, camps, um, uh, as what happened to these people at, when they arrived to the camp? What was the protocol to exterminating these people or killing these people? And how it was developed um, and which are the details of it, which I consider is not fully understood in some cases. Uh, it is fast, far more uh, gruesome and uh, horrible than what I have read in different uh, descriptions of it. This book is mostly based on, um, on oral interviews. I have interviewed many people who were in that specific camp and others, and also in uh, well, affidavits and primary sources that uh, I have found here and there, not only from um, prisoners or survivors of the camps, but also from the very SS. And there we have, you know, the all the material that we can find in the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and in many other museums all over the world, uh, including the NARA archives here in the in, in College Park, for example, or uh, the Q archives in London. Well, I have visited uh, archives all over. And, uh, and the third one is um, 
Well, a book on genocide. It is about what genocide is, and, uh, how, what are the chapters of genocide, the different strategies of genocide. Uh, it is just a book on genocide, and that is the title, On Genocide. It is uh, a description of what genocide is in uh, current uh, um, terms. I think that uh, there is a confusion about uh, what genocide is. Uh, and I know that there is an open debate and there are different theories of what genocide is uh, from different fields of knowledge, and historiography, or as I have said before, the legal studies, let's say the law or international law, criminal justice. But, um, but I am trying to give a new vision of what uh, genocide is and means. I wish you the best of luck in these endeavors. They sound like absolutely necessary and important projects to engage in. So thank you for all the sacrifice going into such research for the benefit of all of us. Uh, thank you very much. It is very difficult to write about these things, especially it is very difficult because <clears throat> the faces and the voices of all these people that uh, we interview come to us. Um, and as you can understand, many of these people are of an age. In some cases, we get a very personal connection and, uh, well, they are all over 90 and they are dying. So, yeah, it is difficult. Thank you. To our, thank to you our to list. Yeah. Thank you. To our listeners, uh, I'm your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. Today, I have been in dialogue with Dr. Javier Irujo. He is full professor and chair of the Center for Basque Studies at the University of Nevada, Reno. We have been discussing his new book that he has co-edited with Keralt Sole, Nazi Juggernaut in the Basque Country and Catalonia, published in Reno, Nevada by the Center for Basque Studies at the University of Nevada, Reno and University of Nevada Press 2018. Thank you.